I have always imagined myself as a thinker, someone who is inside of themselves in a ponderous way, but I often have to ask myself, where does ponderous end and being self-absorbed begin? In Soren Kierkegaard's The Concept of Anxiety, there is much talk about being an inward individual, someone interested in their own thoughts. That might seem on the surface to be obvious. Who wouldn't be interested in their own thoughts? Let honesty rule the day. Let us not be victims of simplistic answers. The honest person understands how often they flee from their own thoughts, how often they feel the need to be distracted from ponderous thinking. We are often told we need to get out of our own heads, accused, as it were, like the Apostle Paul, that much learning doth make thee mad. Paul had to be an inward person, a subjective thinker, as Christianity is objectively silly. Subjectively, metaphorically, however, Christianity can reach a profoundness that can captivate and teach both believer and non-believer alike. The anxiety that comes with being in our own heads does not come from thinking about ourselves, but quite often thinking about what others think about ourselves. This is victimhood. This is the religious person believing the world is evil and out to get them. This is making decisions based upon what others might think of us rather than what we might think of ourselves. This is the problem with an omnipotent God under whose watchful eye we cannot help but feel shame. The difference between being an inward, ponderous person and being self-absorbed is not the amount in which we think about ourselves, but the manner in which we think. Are we changing our own minds or are we being changed by the imagined perceptions of others. I will return to this often about what makes a strong literary character. It is not whether they are physically or mentally weak or strong, not whether they are good or evil, wise or foolish, likable or contemptible. What makes a character strong is whether they act or are acted upon. It is the same that makes our minds weak or strong. Are our minds acting or being acted upon? Anxiety comes from being acted upon, which is the condition of giving up completely any semblance of free will. Ponder, if you will, the best characters in Shakespeare, whether they be hero, anti-hero, or villain, and we are privileged to witness these characters change their own minds via brilliant monologue. This is the purpose of the monologue, that we, the audience, can observe the inner workings of the mind. Immediately, I think of Iago, the incredible villain of the play Othello. 
Othello might be peerless on the physical battlefield, but in the battlefield of the mind, he is easily bested by the ever-plotting Iago. There is no mystery to the play Othello. Iago is immediately transparent to the audience in his intentions and his reasons. Yet watching his machinations unfold is no less interesting because of it. At the beginning of the play, we respect Othello, as he has acted in successfully wooing Desdemona, but we lose this respect when we witness Othello acted upon by Iago. Othello, in the middle third of the play, is not interesting, and we are keenly aware that this is Iago's play. Our initial respect turns to pitiless pity in the final moments of tragedy when Othello succumbs to the jealousy planted and nourished by Iago and then murders his beloved. Watching Othello whimper and cry upon the stage over his feelings of jealousy is only interesting because Iago has been orchestrating it. I can't imagine a single audience member wishing as the curtain falls that there could be an Othello part two in which we could follow Othello on other adventures, but we would all love to see Iago again, delving further into his tactical and conniving mind as we observe Iago so chaos in the soul of another could be something supremely interesting. In this way, Iago proves Milton Satan correct that it is better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. Much like Othello, we kill the things we love when we allow the perceptions of others to form our minds. Christianity in its current form is dead, in dire need of resurrection. This is not the fault of the fundamental teachings of the religion, but because of how it has allowed itself to be acted upon. Perhaps ironically, Christianity's survival came at the cost of its own suicide when it became institutionalized and protected under Constantine. There is no proof that Constantine cared about the teachings of Jesus, but he was a shrewd military leader and politician. This was the first of many deaths that Christianity has suffered, the latest of which has occurred right here in the United States as politicians appeal to religiosity over rationality, single-issue talking points over representing citizens of all backgrounds, ethnicities, orientations, and beliefs. Jesus continues to be taken to the cross again and again and again, not as a selfless sacrifice, but as a weapon to consolidate power. So long as the individual Christian allows this to happen, Christianity is nothing more but a rotting corpse, attractive only to vultures, wild dogs, and worms. Soren Kierkegaard was a Danish writer and philosopher, but I can only read him in English. Much of what he was saying I can only guess at because of the subtlety of language and the difficulty of translating one language 
to another. I think it is a good exercise, though, to look up different translations or interpretations of key concepts, especially in philosophical and religious literature. I do not speak a word of Danish, so you will have to excuse my butchering of the pronunciations as I attempt to share some of my findings in this regard. Kierkegaard uses the words Inderlihild or Inderlingrose. <laughs> that one's a tricky one, I tell you. But these words are usually translated in English to inwardness, although the most literal translations I could find were fervor for the first word and internalization for the second. The root of both words is inder, that's I-N-D-E-R for those who care, inder, which means inside. If we break apart the word inderlihed, it's got to be so bad. My apologies to all Danish people everywhere. But uh, that, that word in its completeness is spelled I-N-D-E-R-L-I-G-H-E-D. Inderlihed. If we break that down to its two parts, we get inder, inside, and lihed, which means equality. So the Danish word for fervor, which translations of Kierkegaard agree to mean inwardness, has its roots in inner equality. Other variants of the word are subtle in spelling and pronunciation, but imply some very different meanings. One variant that caught my eye was inderlit, which I would have guessed to mean inner light because of its spelling, I-N-D-E-R, inder, and then licht, uh, L-I-G-T, uh, so inner light would be my obvious guess, but it actually means deeply. Once again, I remind you of my ignorance of the Danish language, so do not listen to this as linguistically accurate in the least, but I am captivated by the idea of Kierkegaard's inwardness to mean our own fervor over the equality of our inner thought, a fervor that could possibly relieve us of all feelings of anxiety regarding the thoughts of others. This is a recognition of our own depth, our capacity to recognize our own thought, to argue with it, to change our own minds as we develop our profound inner monologues. If we return to Shakespeare, we find Macbeth, who should have lived and died a noble hero until he allowed his mind to be acted upon by those weird sisters who filled his head with prophecies. Up until this point, Macbeth had made himself into a great hero through faith in his own action, his free will, his undoing is disregarding his own will in the belief in prophecy and fate. Interestingly, prophecy throughout the Hebrew Bible was not so fatalistic, despite what Christian literalists would have us believe. Nothing was truly set in stone. 
prophecy in the Hebrew Bible was always conditional on how individuals used their free will. In this way, prophecy was a description of possible consequences rather than pronouncements of what would inevitably come to pass. For the religious believer who actually believes in free will, could God possibly operate in any other way? Macbeth and Lady Macbeth disregard that kind of prophecy, as does the play as a whole, but the fulfillment of prophecy is not at all interesting in Macbeth. What is interesting is watching Macbeth argue with himself, struggling with the often subtle nuance of acting for oneself or being acted upon by others. Is it the greed of the Macbeths for glory and power that is their undoing, or is it their belief in fatalistic prophecy? Their tragedy can be, and most likely is, a combination of both, but the Macbeths are not Iago, they are not villains through and through, which is why the play is a tragedy. It is not a tragedy to watch the plots of a villain come undone, it can only be a tragedy when a hero is undone by an inner flaw that is either developed or brought into light by an outsider's effect on them. Without the interruption of what the Macbeths deem as fatalistic prophecy, we would have to conclude that they would continue being noble people. The story of Jesus in the New Testament also depends on fatalistic prophecy, even if none of the Hebrew Bible prophecies cited in the New Testament are even remotely about Jesus. Still, Jesus pronounces a few prophecies of his own, some that never come true but that are all fatalistic in nature. Once Jesus speaks something prophetic, it must come true. Peter has no choice in the narrative than to deny his teacher three times before the cock crows, just as Judas has no choice but to betray Jesus for an undetermined amount of money. If either of these things had not happened, had either Peter or Judas learned of these prophetic sayings and used their free will to have gone another way, then the literalist Christians would crumble completely. Prophecy is really more of a literary device and often a lazy one. Are we not all bored with stories about chosen ones who have no choice but to be amazing? Jesus, in a literary sense, has no choice but to be great. Prophecy has deemed it so. Jesus has no free will. Prophecy has already proclaimed what will happen. This dehumanization of Jesus makes him much less interesting than if he had just been born without any prophecy announcing him and lived his life the way he did, teaching what he taught, sacrificing himself for his beliefs and his followers without the fatalistic part. In that sense, it would be much more impressive if Jesus wasn't the literal Son of God. Being the demigod that he is, Jesus is like Hercules and has an unfair advantage over the rest of humanity. Isn't a story about a normal human doing miraculous things more interesting than a miraculous being doing miraculous things? If Jesus 
is already born miraculously, then the miraculous for him is normal, just as completing impossible feats of strength and skill is normal for Hercules. For a normal person, unencumbered by fatalistic prophecy, walking on water or killing the hydra would be miraculous. But for the sons of Yahweh and Zeus, it seems less so. Despite the fatalism that dogs the Christian narrative, Jesus is an inward individual, much like the weird sisters who approach Macbeth and promise him the crown, Satan tempts Jesus. It is a strange story involving Satan teleporting Jesus to different locations in order to tempt Jesus to abuse his godly powers for the glory of this world. Jesus keeps his commitment to his inner belief that he later shares with Pilate. My kingdom is not of this world. Pilate is not amused and asks, Are you a king then? Answering in the affirmative to this question would be an instant death sentence for Jesus, and there is a lot of subtle wordplay between Jesus and Pilate that is both masterfully crafted by the unknown author of the text, who lived a lifetime after Jesus had died and could not possibly have known what was said in the exchange, and also anti-Semitic. Jesus speaks of the Jews as if he is not a devout Jew himself. It's devilishly subtle, as are so many things within the Gospels. If the Christian literalist weren't so overbearing, then the atheist would have no problem enjoying the story of Jesus, if only as a literary achievement. Pilate has better things to do than deal with this internal dispute amongst the Jews, and his impatience is evident when Jesus proclaims his life mission to bear witness to the truth. A comment Pilate coolly brushes aside before walking out the door with the rhetorically pessimistic response, What is truth? Many Christian depictions of this interchange between Jesus and Pilate portray Pilate as quasi-converted to this extremely wise and impressive Jesus. However, a critical reading of the text gives no proof of this whatsoever. What is actually being presented is a savvy, calculating, and militant executive of Rome completely unimpressed with the unknown hayseed demigod standing before him, cunningly resolving a local dispute. In the face of the uninterested pilot who sees him as one more nobody in a long list of nobodies he must deal with day to day, Jesus must rely on his inwardness, his inner fervor that he is the standard of truth who will change the world forever. To believe that Jesus did not struggle with his identity and his life's mission is also to dehumanize him. We love Macbeth because he is human. Macbeth is tragic because he is human and there is a side of us that wants Macbeth to succeed because we are human and we believe in free will, not the prophecies of witches. No Christian would save Jesus from the cross because Jesus is not human. It's established from the beginning that Jesus is beyond any of us so there is nothing we can or should do for him 
The prophecy is set in stone and no amount of free will can stop it. Peter makes a pathetic attempt when he cuts off the ear of a servant of the high priest. Jesus replaces the ear and informs Peter yet again that all is predetermined. All of these stories are more subtle than we often give them credit for, thinking we are more familiar with them than we actually are. Most great stories I can think of deal with this nuance of characters either acting for themselves or being acted upon by others. We might also struggle then with the subtlety and nuance of knowing when we are acting for ourselves or when we are being acted upon. But the difference can be akin to being only slightly off in our calculations in navigating a long voyage and, in the end, we are miles and miles off course and possibly completely lost. 